The um, In Search of the Miraculous by Uspensky and uh, The Fourth Way when I was uh, a student years and years ago. And even though there's a certain amount of practical guidance in there, I, uh, well, one of the things that drew me towards Buddhism was the, the, uh, the real um, living environment of doing the necessary, <laughs> and that uh, because I I could I could read uh, Gurdjieff and Uspensky and so forth when I was uh, living a a, a sort of student life and and uh, working in London or uh, around and about. But then it's like you read the books and you think, oh yeah, great, fantastic, and then, <laughs> then uh, so that it was a. Uh, for, for me, the, the living environment of Dhamma practice was the, the thing that, that I felt uh, was, so, was so helpful and what really drew me towards Buddhism in particular. But I, that I would agree there's a lot of uh, concordance between the, the spiritual approaches. You know, the word for mindfulness, sati, uh, the Sanskrit root of it, also the Pali has a similar meaning, but the Sanskrit root of it is to remember, and that uh, I know in the in Gurdjieff's work that uh, remembering, and remembering to remember. Uh, it's, it's what you describe um, in the actual practices that you know people are taught. It's really connection with the body, with the you know with the sense of being here, and connection with the breathing, and trying to be in a place that can observe without interfering. In Yeah, it's very closely aligned to what we would, we would call mindfulness. It's yeah. like the teachings of Eckhart Tolle, the famous uh, teacher. Mm-hmm. Oh, he used to visit here when he was... Eckhart Tolle used to visit here when he was still a confused and unfamous uh, grad student at Cambridge, I think. He came and stayed here a few times. I might have even have been the guest monk when he came, but uh, I don't have a clear memory of it. <laughs> I don't. That, I don't remember. <laughs> well, please feel free to ask any questions that you have. I think we'll wait for everyone to come back in, so we can just start. As uh, yes. Can I ask a question about? Mm-hmm. I um, I think in, in the context of the Christian teaching about faith, hope, and charity, if I try and relate it to Buddhist teaching, I can understand faith as not blind faith, but um, investigating and examining conditions and coming to an understanding of the truth. If I think about charity, 
I understand it as compassion and loving kindness, and a direct sort of correlation with Buddhist teaching. <laughs> um, when I think about hope, and I think about the unsatisfactoriness of phenomena and conditions as we experience them, I sort of also get this sense or feeling of hopelessness that goes with that. And when I think of hope within the normal context of our understanding of hope and the way we <laughs> work, I find myself thinking that it's very akin to desire <laughs> and that um, in keeping with the second noble truth, we need to get rid of desire, we need to abandon desire. <laughs> I just wonder if there is a sort of Buddhist equivalent to what Christians might regard as hope, or whether we abandon La Sierra Spere. Well, I'm also, as you're speaking, I'm, rem I'm reminded of uh, the, uh, the line from T.S. Eliot, I think from the, the Four Quartets, to wait without hope, for to hope would be to hope for the wrong thing. And I think it's exactly what you're talking about. There's a kind of superficial hope, which is um, what we, the way we would use the word in everyday language. But I suspect that in, in terms of faith, hope, and charity, there's a, there's a different level um, that it's, it's being pointed to. And um, you know, in, in Buddhist practice, not all, not all kinds of desire are the causes of, of dukkha, of suffering. And that the uh, I'm a, again I'm not sure exactly how the the word would be used in a in a more profound sense in Christian terminology, but um, hope in terms of a um, a uh, a basic trust that the um, liberation is possible. And that um, no no uh, error or no uh, disharmony can be permanent, um, and so that there's a there's a, a way of um, then also looking at that quality of hope in terms of of a desire in terms of aiming your actions towards that potentiality. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. So that uh, so that kind of desire is called chanda. Chanda, C-H-A-N-D-A, and that uh, Chanda is a is an, a, a, a morally neutral quality. It's it's uh, whereas the kind of desire that always causes discord and suffering is called Tanha, which literally translates as as thirst, or craving. Chanda is more like zeal or interest. It's like a um, that. Uh, Sort of movement of the heart towards, or, or, or like igniting the, the quality of, of interest and engagement. And the Buddha pointed out that in order to, to, to do anything, whether it's digging a vegetable garden, um, realizing complete enlightenment, or, or sh you know, shooting a pheasant, or whatever it might be, any action, whether it's uh, positive, neutral, or, or negative, karmically, uh, it has to to succeed, you have to begin with chanda. There has to be that quality of interest and engagement. 
And so I'd say that that hope as a genuinely beneficial spiritual quality, it's a it's a um, it's based on that, uh, in a sense, the the recognition that there is a uh, there's always a potential for liberation, and that that if our, our actions or our intentions are steered towards that, then the, you know, we have a reason to hope. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. There's, uh, there isn't really, a, it, there's no, um, in the normal Buddhist vernacular, there's, there's no concept that regularly gets translated as hope. Like you never hear, you never see hope in any of the lists of the Buddha's qualities that you're kind of uh, prompting. But uh, just seeing how in the Christian tradition that it's, it's listed with such prominence and is seen as such something so significant. To me, what I like to do with those kind of things is if I look at and see the setting of it, the context in which it's used, then I consider, okay, what must that be talking about? Because it can't be, say, hope in the, in, a, in the way that we would normally use it. So that's how I would explore those kind of terms. Yes. Realize that not here, and we meditate to realize that this point seems to be here is actually not here. Um, well, the, uh, the 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 last thing I was talking about was really applying that that kind of focus in when you're using insight meditation. So you're using a reflective thought. So or you're using a um, the, the capacity of the mind to frame a, a thought or use a, a, a brief statement to illuminate the habits of attachment that are there. So, by, uh, so if the mind is quite busy and chattering away, then if you just use this, introduce the word here-ness or where is here, in, if, it's, if it's just in the, in the midst of a pile of of verbiage, it's, it's not going to have any very useful effect. So that kind of, uh, to use that kind of practice or develop it, there needs to be a basis of, of calm and, and inner quietude, first of all. And so when the mind is quite, quite focused, and as you would for insight meditation practice, that there's the, a, a, a steadiness of attention on the present. And then a, a a, uh, an embracing of the flow of perception, sounds that you're hearing, sensations in the body, different, different uh, thoughts or such that are arising, different textures of mood that are coming and going, but the attention is, is resting easily in the present. So that uh, within that, there's a recognition of the quality of, of change, of transiency, also the quality of of not self, and so then, in that when when that quality of, of steadiness of attention and spaciousness is established, then you would bring in a question like, "Where is here?" or or I, or, some, or often I'd find that if you if you just repeat the same question or the same statement, the mind gets inured to it very easily. So often I'd find you need to just tweak the statement or the question, just move it around a bit, just to keep it fresh. So um, I would also use uh, a question like, where is this happening? 
And what, what, you, what you find is that when that kind of a question is brought into uh, the claret, a clear uh, space of awareness, then the, the presumptuousness of, of the word where, just like with, it's, it's similar with, with who, to investigate the feeling of self, almost as the word is formed, that something feels wrong. That there's, there's that, you're drawing upon the intuitive wisdom that recognizes where doesn't really apply. And it doesn't, it's not as though that's a conceptual thought you're, that you're plastering on top of it. It's just that feeling of, oh, <laughs> that, that's not quite right. Or why, that, that's out of order. Or that's, that's presuming a reality that doesn't really exist. So that then, as, that, as you drop in a statement like, where is here? Or, or where is this happening? Where is this experienced? Or, uh, or you're just using a word like hereness, or just here, <laughs> keep, to keep it extremely simple. Then, then as that's dropped into the, that fertile space, and then there's that, that hesitation, and like the, the, the habitual mind that is continually constructing my ordinary everyday world with time and me and, and place uh, woven into it then uh, there's, a, there's a hesitation. There's a, uh, almost like a, a stumbling. It's like, oh. And then there's a, a, uh, what Lumpur Samedo likes to say is the gap. There's a gap that opens up when you, you bring that, that in, that, that habitual um, self and time and, and location forming habit is interrupted. It hesitates. It sort of trips over its own feet. And there's a gap that opens up, even for just like half a second. So then, just to try to keep the attention on that, when the mind goes, oh. Before it even comes up with any other words at all, or, or any, any, any verbal answer, that, that very hesitancy is, the, is the, the thing that is being aimed at. So then just to, to see how the perspective shifts when that feeling of location drops away. When, there's, when, that's a, when that is challenged and then there's a, a quality of openness and that, that unlocated quality of awareness becomes apparent, then just sustain that as long as possible before something comes in and, and uh, it drifts. Uh, you know, avijja, ignorance of, arises and, and diverts the attention. But just to try and stay with that. Another useful reflection is that um, that I also find that, that, we, that uh, is is helpful to support this is that three-dimensional space only relates to the the physical world. Yeah, we we say, oh, yeah, oh my mind, and we clutch our head, <laughs> right? Or, or even even if you're an Asian, you say, oh, you know, it, it's uh, in my mind, and you point at your chest, maybe. But um, the, uh, the fact is that it's only, in terms of the five khandhas, form, feeling, perception, mental formations, consciousness, only place only relates to the world of form, only to rupa. <laughs> that, that the four mental khandhas, the four mental aggregates, feeling, perception, mental formations, consciousness, they have no relationship to three-dimensional three space. They don't exist in space. So the, uh, the habits of saying, oh, you know, oh my mind, or um, 
the uh, uh, you know my mind is all over the place. You know that those are figures of speech that seem very ordinary to us, very natural, but uh, just to recognise that you know, the mind is no is not anywhere, and that uh, and I found that just uh, in, in terms of a reflection, just to to bring that up, saying three-dimensional space only relates to the world of form. The mind cannot be defined in any in in any place, and uh, that as a concept is something that we might miss, but it's, it's the actuality of it. And uh, just to, uh, to, bear, to, to bring that into that, that same kind of practice, you can also ask, um, I, I would use a question like, where is, where is the mind? You know, and we use that as a figure of speech, where's, where's your mind? Like, how could you be so heedless? <laughs> but... Uh, but just using that as a meditation method, like, and something again recognizes where doesn't apply. There, there's a um, uh, a wonderful in the in the northern Buddhist scriptures. There's a a wonderful sutra called the Shurangama Sutra, and it uh, it starts off with a scenario of Ananda going on arms round and getting almost getting seduced by somebody in the local town because he gets distracted by a hearing some kind of magical mantra and he gets caught up and, and on, the, on the verge of having a, a, a spiritual disaster you know, the Buddha appears and <laughs> whisks Ananda away and then he starts off on this, this, uh, this uh, dialogue with Ananda and it's, uh, it's, it's an investigation into perception and it, start, and it begins with the Buddha asking Ananda um, you know, where is your mind? Or, or actually, uh, to quote it accurately, somewhere in here. <laughs> Let's see. The Buddha says to Ananda, It is the fault of your mind and eyes that you flow and turn. I'm now asking you specifically about your mind and eyes. Where are they now? And so then, in the, the, the manuscript that I had of that, that sutra, it goes on for about a hundred pages is incredibly thorough and Ananda keeps coming up with these places where his mind is and, and then the Buddha says no it's not there because XYZ no no it's not there because XYZ and finally Ananda throws his arms up and says please illuminate us venerable sir where is my mind and he says, he says Ananda the mind cannot be defined anywhere awareness does not apply <laughs> so that's another angle of approach that I, I would use this, and, and when you do this, it's, you're not looking for a verbal answer to that kind of a question. So when you ask the question, where is your mind? Or where is here? It's not some kind of fancy philosophical answer you're looking for. What's being looked for is the hesitation. It's the, uh, the, the, the uh, confounding of the, the, the thinking mind. And then to sustain the attention on that, on the, on that gap, that sort of, oh... <laughs> and then when that's and then stay with that as long as you can and then when that erodes or drifts away then to come back with the same statement or a similar one to, to just keep opening that up so then that unlocated awareness becomes familiar ground yeah. groundless ground yeah. does that make sense to people? Yeah. yes please 
just try and work difficult questions. Exhibition phenomena, compounded phenomena, to save to ourselves, uh, is in a state of flux. So there's this flux in China. Mm -hmm. It's not, not necessarily a permanent thing that's changing, but we're caught up in these conditions of flux in China. Now, in Buddhism, the Dharma is described as permanent, unchanging. Now, within the mind that perceives this flux and change, mm -hmm. this mind that perceives the unchanging environment that is reached. So, what is that mind if there isn't a God? Something must be said. It's a question I always ask myself, mm -hmm. a difficult question I ask myself. What actually perceives these things? Well, the, um, it's a good, very good question. And you're, you're not the first person to ask. <laughs> but um, what, what you can say is that the... the um, well, one way of expressing it is to say that the, the, Buddha arise, the, the Buddha arises from the Dhamma. And the Buddha represents the, the quality of wisdom or awareness. So that's a way of, of saying the um, the quality of awareness is an attribute of the Dhamma. So that when there is when the mind is fully awakened, what what is what's being experienced is the Dhamma knowing its own nature. And even the Dhamma must be subject to change. Force things are subject to change. Are you saying that? The, when the illusion of self, mm -hmm. when that illusion is not discovered but realized, mm -hmm. then that is nirvana itself. Well, when the, is, the, the Dhamma is described as being timeless rather than being permanent. So permanent means like a thing which exists and carries on through time, where Dhamma is described as being akaliko or timeless. It's outside of the dimension of time. Um, so that that um, yeah, again, words uh, stretch. Again, quoting T.S. Eliot, "Crack and bend to <laughs> to fit the, the the reality." But if uh, the Dhamma is timeless, so it's not something that's beginning and ending. It's not a thing that's beginning and ending, but it's a a a, a, a transcendent quality, and that that. As the aspect of, of awareness, in a way, is a it's a uh, an attribute of dhamma, and so that your um, when the the feeling of self that when that drops away, and that awareness is unobstructed, then what is realized is that fundamental reality. It's like the mind knowing its own nature, the dhamma knowing its own nature. Well, the watch has moved away, hasn't it? And there's a, a, an awareness, but there's nothing you would call that is aware. There's no thing. Nothing. No thing. But there's not... If there's a feeling of a watcher, or a, a separate observer, that's, like a, there's a, that's a subtle sense of, of identity. So that's the kind of thing I was talking about with, with this, which is really interesting, and it's a, it's a, a good point to bring up. Because the, this looking at the feeling of awareness or, or locatedness, often when in meditation with, we can create a sense of, of the watcher or the observer 
that's somehow separate from uh, what is seen. And then we can create a, a, a subtle sense of, of identity around that, that watching. But that, that, that uh, sort of the feeling of the separate watcher needs to be let go of as well. So there's watching, there's an awareness, there's, there's a knowing, but it's not abstracted from, from uh, uh, what's being known. So that there's a, a um, uh, in a way, uh, what I, I like to use the, the phrase uh, unentangled participation rather than uh, being, the, being the watcher or being the, the, uh, the knower. Because you can still build, at least I find for myself in meditation, you can still make this sort of, this little bubble of me, like the video camera, you know, the closed circuit TV camera that's sort of watching everything. And not, not caught up in it, but it's, 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 there's a, a strange kind of abstraction. But when we really let go, there's, there's more like the, that, there's no, the awareness of, of, a, of a participating in experience. But that's, there's no entanglement, no limitation that's involved with that. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. yeah um, when, when you work, use the word dharma, Mm-hmm. If I change that for God, there wouldn't be any difference. Not much. <laughs> well, the, you know, the um, uh, when they try to translate the Bible into Thai, they, they were in Thailand, uh, they tried to avoid using all Buddhist language, but since that 40% of the Thai language comes from Buddhist terms, it was rather difficult. So when they got to the Gospel of John, it began, with, it began something like, in the beginning was the noun. <laughs> and uh, Ajahn Buddhadasa, who's this, he's passed away now, but he was this very eminent philosopher, um, a wonderful teacher in Thailand. He thought, he's very ecumenically minded as well. Kind of. He thought, oh, good grief, this is terrible. So he said, can I help you? <laughs> and so he actually volunteered to help them translate the, the Bible into, into Thai. Um, and uh, he and he pointed out that you know I know I'm a Buddhist monk and I know you want to avoid using Buddhist terms, but actually you you can put them to good use and it, it could be more accurate. It could communicate more accurately what you're trying to say. And so the the eventual translation for the beginning of Gospel of John was in the beginning was the Dharma. <laughs> <laughs> which is which is closer to the the, the Greek logos. Than, than even the English word word. So, but also he, uh, Ajahn Buddha Dasa would similarly say uh, that that uh, the word Dhamma is, a, is the best translation you have for, for the Christian term God. In particular, if you're not thinking of God just in terms of a, of a sort of super being up in the sky, but more of a the sort of fundamental ordering principle of reality. And so that he he would um, free he would freely move back and forth between those those terms if he was talking to a Western audience. Um, it can get confusing if if we got strong conditioning or the theistic model because in in Buddhist philosophy you can't and that's why I began the talk with by saying anywhere you try and put the Dharma out there is is going to be wider the mark because in terms of Buddhist teachings Dharma is only you can't conceive of yourself separate from the Dhamma. It just doesn't, you, you, there's no way you can arrange, you can, you can fit it, that you can't meaningfully do that in Buddhist, using Buddhist philosophy and Buddhist teachings. Um, 
And so that uh, it's, it's a, a somewhat different model because you know, so much of Christian teachings are about feeling me separate from God and trying to get, get united with that. But um, it's more, in Buddhist practice, it's more recognizing that the Dhamma is the, the fundamental reality of, of all things. And it's, uh, we might not have realized that. There's a separation in terms of, because of ignorance, the mind is clouded and that, that fundamental quality is, has not been realized. But if um, greed, hatred and delusion are let go of, then the realization of that, that fundamental reality of what, what we are and what all things are, are will become apparent. So it's not God as a super being somewhere else or as a, a creator who sort of sparked the universe into being, but more like the Christian uh, theological idea of the Godhead, like the sort of fundamental, a more um, sort of non-theistic or, or formless mo uh, quality that is uh, kind of uh, underlying all things. Yeah, please. A funny question. Go ahead. Who, who is the I? There's no I. Uh, who is the I who is appreciating the qualities of the Dharma and uh, appreciating the qualities of building equanimity and awareness of the nature? Is there a simple way of uh, understanding? Mm -hmm. There was a young man who said, though, it appears that I know that I know. What I'd like to see is the I that knows me when I know that I know that I know. I didn't make that up. <laughs> well, it, that, again, it's a, it's a presumption that there's an I who's the experiencer. And so with, with insight meditation, what, what is being explored is that the, the recognition, oh, there's an awareness, there's a knowing, and the feeling of I arises within that. As that's something that is known, that when you're using the investigation into self, then that when, say, that you're watching the activity of the mind, and then it says, oh, who is it that's knowing this? And then, that, oh, that's a question. Who is it that's knowing this? That question arises and ceases. There's an awareness of that question. It comes into being that that awareness is not a person. It's not a guy in a purple t-shirt. It's not a human. It's just, it's just knowing. And so that when we say, yeah, but I'm, a, well, I'm not a guy in a purple t-shirt, you are, but. <laughs> you know, Buddhist monk in a robe. You know. Say, so, well, yes, from the outside you can call it that, but but inside, the experience of it is there is there's a knowing, and that's not female, it's not male, it's not old, it's not young. It's it's a a, a present quality that is aware of the arising and passing of experiences. So, with insight meditation, what's being done is trying to the effort to stay and with that quality of awareness, being that, that knowing, that unentangled participating. So there's seeing the, the, the perceptions of I and the, the self-creating habits coming into being, doing their thing. And even when the mind goes, oh right, I'm the knowing, that's what I am. That, well, that's the thought too. I am the knowing. <laughs> The, the, it's like staying at the back wall of experience and any kind of forming of that or naming of that, like, oh, that's what I am, I'm the ultimate reality, that's right, Ajahn Amaro told me. You know? 
but you just grabbed, a, taken a thought about an experience and then grabbed a thought and tried to hold on to that. So the, the aim of, of the practice is always staying with that quality of, of, of knowing, of being that, that awareness. And then from that quality of attunement and, and being that knowing, then our actions and responses to, to, the, to the moment come forth from that quality of attunement. Even though it might look from the outside like I'm deciding to say this or I, I'm, moving my, I'm, I'm choosing to move my hand in this particular way, that even choices that have got our name written on them are still not self. I'm glad I asked the question, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, yeah. What I was looking for. <laughs> well, somebody was. Something was. There was a looking. Yes, please. Personally, I find that during a sitting meditation or walking meditation, we can see this uh, skill of being aware, the skillful attention to uh, our feelings, our, our body. But... Um, when we finish that practice, when we're in our daily lives, when we've got a lot of sort of inputs coming in, um, stimulation, it's difficult to keep that uh, attention. And uh, I wanted to ask you, you know, is it, is, it, is it right to assume that the more meditation we do, be it sort of sitting or, or walking meditation, that skill will naturally just sort of flow into our sort of daily lives when we're not, say, in that sort of focused meditation? Or is there some sort of practical skill that uh, you can suggest <laughs> for our sort of daily lives? You know, when we're sort of caught up with things and there's so many things sort of happening all mm-hmm. one, one moment possibly. And it's difficult to keep that attention. We get run up, well, I, I personally get run away with my feelings. I can, I can, I can feel that happening. Um, and then in the evening when, I, when I'm meditating, I can reflect on it. But, uh, but actually, it's, it's a bit too late. There's <laughs> practical about it at yeah. the time. Well, it depends a lot on how you handle the meditation and what you relate to as the meditation. Because sometimes we can, we can hold the meditation as a sort of this, this nice little safe place where I just shut the world out and I've got my little balloon where everything is good. And, and if, we, if that's how we hold meditation, I mean, it's fair enough. You know? <laughs> it's nice to have at least a little quiet space. But if, if what we're doing um, is... With, the, with our uh, efforts to concentrate and to, to focus the mind that we're, in a sense, just holding the world at bay and then making this a special little uh, peaceful spot, then it's, much, it's, it's hard to then translate whatever the skills that you learn in the meditation to a, a broader scope. Uh, I remember um, year, uh, years ago, I was leading a, a retreat here and I was doing a... Um, a particular kind of um, mindfulness of breathing meditation that was based on, on following the breath at the, at the heart center and using it together with loving, uh, loving kindness practice. And about the fourth or fifth day of the retreat, I was doing the interviews and this woman came in and says, Ajahn Amro, you've ruined my life. I hate you. <laughs> but she had a big smile on her face. So I thought, okay, well, I'm probably safe here. <laughs> she said, I hate you. You've ruined my life. And I said, oh, that's interesting. Why is that? And she said, well, you know, I'm, you know I, I run a, a psychiatric nursing unit. 
You know, I have to do this enormous amount of damage control during the course of the day. My working life is complete chaos. But I was really, I've been practicing meditation for years and years, and I'm really pleased with how I handle my mind. So I come home, you know, get myself settled, sit down, and mm, my mind will be clear and peaceful and bright. And now, it's like I was up in this beautiful attic space, and I had you know, all the skylights and the beautiful you know, white walls and the sunlight coming in. And now, you've, you've, you've made me go down and explore the rest of the house. And it's chaos down there. <laughs> I thought, I've always remembered that because I thought it described it very well because she did have very good powers of concentration. And, and, and so what she was able to do was when the, the day finished, she could just go and sit down and meditate, and she could put all of the, uh, the effects of the day off to the edges and just have a nice, quick, you know, peaceful, quiet, bright spot. But there was all this huge amount of unfinished business, there was chaos down in the rest of the, <laughs> of the building that she wasn't paying attention to. And so then that practice of, of, in a way, just bringing the attention to the realm of feeling and mood, um, it kind of messed up her. Uh, beautiful safe spot you know it doesn't really matter that you've got a nice nice place up in the attic if the kids are going berserk down in the and causing havoc in the kitchen and the, and the uh, sitting room so when the, the meditation is more integrated in that way if you use the the time for meditation practice to not just be creating a a pleasant little bubble but you're you're bringing more uh, attention to the realm of uh, feelings, like the effects of the day. Just letting yourself um, be aware of the resonances of the, of the day and to sort of develop mindfulness of the different effects that your encounters have had. That even if, you know, when you've lost your temper, you got really excited or really frightened or um, you know, angry in the traffic, uh, you know, such like. Just to let those, if those come up, just to let those be known rather than just shutting that out. And in particular, what's helpful in, in um, developing that, that broader scope of meditation is using mindfulness of the body. And so in that, with the meditation, to use the first, say, 10, 15 minutes to, to bring the attention to the body and, and really let yourself know what, um, uh, what, f- what the sensations are through the body, let yourself really get settled down, know whether, notice where the tensions and, and knots are in, in the body. And developing, uh, through the meditation, use the, the body as a reference point. So that, say you're using the mindfulness of breathing as a, as a focus. Every so often, every five, ten minutes, just bring your attention back into the rest of the body. Say, okay, well, I've been on the breath for 20 minutes now, so you know, what's, what's happening in my face? Are my teeth clenched? Are my eyes scrunched up? You know, what's happening in my shoulders? What's happening in my, my hip joints? And so that... Um, you're bringing the the body as a into into focus as a reference point and as and also in seeing how when we try and work with the mind often we can get so involved with the mental world that we forget the presence of the body and the influence that the body's having on us so in the sitting meditation developing much more of a, a referencing the body and, and body feelings then during the course of the day what I like to recommend is then is using the mindfulness of the body throughout the daily activity, so that uh, um, you're you're, uh, you're obviously you're more engaged with people. You're doing things. You're going. You know, having conversations, and you're performing as a person far more than you are when you're on the cushion. 
But still, the body's there, and, it's, and the body never wanders off into the past and the future. Yeah, it's very reliable. <laughs> it's always right here. It's your, your absolutely guaranteed uh, contact point with, with the here and now. You know, the, the body it never drifts. <laughs> it's very reliable. <laughs> so, it, uh, just bringing the, that into a... a um, uh, into the day-to-day, moment-to-moment focus of, of uh, your awareness, remembering to do that. Also, you can set little um, tasks for yourself or just say, okay, whenever I walk anywhere, whether it's around the office, down the, down the pavement, or through the uh, supermarket, you know, if ever I'm doing any kind of walking at all, I'll bring my attention into my feet and I'll just notice the feeling of walking. Or every time I go through a door, I make a point of, of paying close attention. Not doing everything in slow motion. Yeah. Don't do that. <laughs> It'll drive your, your, uh, your, uh, your people in the, in the workplace completely nuts. But, so it's not a matter, being mindful doesn't mean doing things in slow motion. It just means paying attention. So just simple things like that. When you, you go through a door, just notice that feeling of, of turning the handle, going through a door. Just little checkpoints during the course of a day. Say, okay, what's the body doing? How am I feeling? And they think, whoa, am I on the way somewhere? Like, <laughs> just to notice, gee, there's this huge feeling of urgency here, or this feeling of boredom, or um, uh, excitement, or whatever. So it's just bringing that attention in, noticing how does that feel in the body? What's this? Not just the, the sensations of the action, but what's, what's the way that we're holding the body? What, uh, what way is the mood and the, the attitude being held in the, in the physical realm? And that, those little ways of checking in through the course of the day uh, are really helpful. Even if you, you get to you know, 4.45 and you realize, I was going to keep track of my footsteps today. <laughs> it's nearly 5 o'clock and I, <laughs> I've only just remembered I've got a body. You know. <laughs> this can happen yeah, to the best of us. But even then, it's just to recognize, wow, look at that. I was so tied up throughout the day, I completely spaced out the fact of, of, of practicing with this at all. Look at that. And even though you've lost it for the previous seven and a half hours, at that point, you think, well, look at that. that was the, I was so caught up in this project, or that, that breakfast meeting was so annoying. <laughs> that My mind was stuck on that for all this time. Look at that. So then you're, even when you lose it, you're plowing that back into to being an encouragement to pay closer attention. But the main thing I would say in terms of, of developing a, an ongoing awareness is, is mindfulness of the body is hard to beat. And also just that when, you f- when you're feeling, bringing the attention into the body and you're noticing the feelings that are there, then before you try and do anything with it, like, oh, should relax, 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 I'm uptight, relax, you know. Just let yourself feel what it's like to be tense. Just sort of stay with the urgency or the tension or the, uh, or the, the feeling of being you know, hassled or hot or whatever. And before you try and do anything with it, just let yourself know, what's that like? So rather than, oh, this is an uncomfortable feeling, I should let go of this. That rather than that, just letting the awareness have its effect, like knowing that, that, the effect of being caught up in a, in a mood or in a state. And then just the sheer, letting the, the sheer uh, and simple awareness of it 
be the, where the letting go comes from. Does that make sense? Because oftentimes we think we, we can follow an instructional like, oh yeah, I'm uptight here, I should let go, and we're just following another should. Whereas instead, if, we, if, we, if we're clinging to something, like, you know, and, and I, I don't know, I think, gee, I'm really tense, I'm uptight. Well, this kind of, you know, life is really, really difficult. Then, and I, and I, I, I look and I, I see, oh, that's where it's coming from. This is really, this is really a burden. Then, once you see where it's coming from, then the relaxation just comes from your seeing. Why am I doing that to myself? <sighs> so the, 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 the letting go and the relaxation with it, the coming back into balance, is, is coming from a much more basic and intuitive place rather than, oh, Ajahn Amaro told me I should do this, so, so I should. And, and it's just, uh, it's more coming from the, the head. But the other is just, like, ow, this is burning. <laughs> like, what am I holding this thing for? Like, If, if there are, say, subtle feelings of, say, uh, anger or hatred, I mean, not gross feelings, but subtle feelings, or, or greed, um, would you say, and, and only say you've noticed that, would you say, well, actually, it's best to hold off on any decision here, I'm just going to just sort of be with this feeling, or, or once you notice that feeling, would, would, it, would it naturally maybe bring some sort of balance in, into what you're about to think or say? Yes, well, it's best to... Um uh, if you if you know there's that feeling and that you're feeling angry or greedy, then it's it's best to pause. If you ha if there seems to be a possibility of pausing, like give the other person your credit card. Say, can you hold this for ten minutes? <laughs> well, just till we get past this, these shops, you know. <laughs> you know, so that you you know if you know that there's this sort of wave of oh. Then, uh, then yeah, it's good to just take those kind of steps. To, to, um, I mean, not necessarily giving somebody else your credit card. I mean, if you really, <laughs> but but still knowing, like, okay, I, I have to get really, really careful when I go, you know, to that part of town because, or, or when I see those adverts, because I'm really convinced I have to have the, the newest, the latest, whatever it is. It was, it, I was at a Dalai Lama's teachings once, and he was. Um, it was a, 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 a kind of conference. It was, I think it was in, in um, uh, it was at MIT in, in Massachusetts, Cambridge, Massachusetts. And where he was staying, the hotel, there was this whole line of, um, of electronics shops. And the, the Dalai Lama was quite a gadget freak. He said if he wasn't the Dalai Lama, he'd be an engineer. He was an electrical engineer. He has his fantasies of being an electrical engineer. And he, the, the, so his, his limousine would take him past all these electronics shops and he'd find himself. <laughs> and this feeling, and he was talking about this to like 3,000 people, you know, about these, these feelings of temptation. Of like, oh, maybe I could, some way I could get the driver to stop and we could just kind of have a look. And, <laughs> and he was talking about these, uh, how his mind was, was going through, through uh, cartwheels trying to figure out some sort of viable way he could get the driver to stop and... <laughs> He could have the, you know, he is the Dalai Lama with, you know, his entourage and security men just popping in to the, to uh, Radio Shack to, <laughs> to, to look at their gadgets. But, 
but he was he was he was talking about it as a as a way of, of speaking about desire, and he said so. I, I said actually I was very grateful that that I had to get to this meeting and that um, you know that I, I didn't have a reasonable excuse to get the driver to stop because then I could look at this feeling of desire and also knowing that if the if the car had taken a different route I wouldn't have felt so disturbed and filled with that oh I got it oh. But he said, because the car went that, that, by, that, by that route, that then he, he was tempted and saw the, in, the interest arising and the excitement about, ooh, <laughs> I wonder if they've got the new... <laughs> and that, uh, so it was, uh, it's, it's something that everybody experiences. So don't feel like you're a, a terrible person if you have those feelings of irritation or, or desire. But also recognizing where your weak, your weak spots are, and so the, you know, the Buddha was very practical. He said, "You know, if if, uh, if you know that um, going someplace is going to be dangerous, don't go there. <laughs> go somewhere else. <laughs> it's not like you should be strong enough to go to that you know, dangerous place where there's lots of temptation and just muscle through." He, he was very practical. He said, no, if, if you know a place is dangerous and difficult, go somewhere else. Don't go there. And, you know, so it's useful to know things that get you really upset or things that make you frightened or things that make you greedy. Say, okay, well, let's be cautious here. Okay, so I see the time is about 4.15. I'm not sure what, what uh, time we wind up, but... Uh... Okay. <laughs> Not tomorrow, right? <laughs> or in, so maybe that's a good point to, uh, to wind things up for this afternoon. Thank you all for your good attention and wonderful questions. And, uh, see you all again.